Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dreaming of the world That we may dream as one With every voice, with every song We will move this world along Suggestions and possibilities for Spirit in Action guests come from all over. Some come from publicists, some through news sources. Some are folks I know and may even have been involved in activism with. But another delightful source of guests is your shared knowledge of world-changing individuals, wherever you're listening to this from. One longtime listener and supporter of Northern Spirit Radio is Rich Van Dellen, who, as a medical doctor himself, has faced the issues of end-of-life medical care. Rich suggested that I contact an organization that works to empower individuals to have the best situation possible for themselves in the face of a terminal illness and physical suffering. So thanks to Rich Van Dellen for directing me to Compassion and Choices, where, with the help of Sean and Anne, I've connected to the Chief Program Officer of Compassion and Choices, Kimberly Callanan. Kim does this work, things like pushing for legislation like Oregon's Death with Dignity Law from back in 1997, or empowering people to face the medical system with their personal choices in hand. Kim Callanan now joins us by phone from the D.C. area. Kim, thank you so much for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. I'm really looking forward to the conversation. So I'm talking to you because you're the Chief Program Officer of Compassion and Choices. Can you tell me overall what this organization is about? Of course, I've read it on your website, CompassionAndChoices.org, but I'd like to hear it from your words. Absolutely, Mark. So we are the nation's oldest, largest, and most active national nonprofit organization that's committed to improving care and expanding choice at the end of life. And what that really means is we are looking to help put the consumer in the driver's seat around their health care so that they end up getting care that's consistent with their values and priorities. At the end of life usually means terminal illnesses. I mean, we're all dying at various rates, but there's a certain critical juncture toward the end. Could you talk about how we recognize that juncture? If someone's in a car accident, it's very different. You know, they die perhaps immediately on the spot. But there's terminal illnesses, I think, that are probably the subject that you're most focused toward. Yeah, so as an organization, a lot of our programming is around terminal illness, and a terminal illness means that the person has an illness that cannot be treated or cured, and oftentimes there's a prognosis of six months or less to live. What we've actually found, though, in our work is that we really are working more with people who have serious illnesses, too, because the way you impact the very, very end of one's life is by working with them earlier on in their disease trajectory. So really the organization's programs, especially our newest initiative, Truth and Treatment, provide support and tools to people at the onset of a serious diagnosis. 
So serious diagnoses include things I would assume like, I mean, multiple sclerosis is one that has a long-term trajectory in general, Parkinson's disease, other illnesses like that. Do they less come under compassion and choices and more towards truth and treatment? Within our truth and treatment initiative, absolutely illnesses that are chronic like that, people can take the tools that we use within truth and treatment to help them navigate those types of illnesses as well. Our end goal and our mission is to improve the very end of one's life the last year or so to ensure that they live their life to the fullest in the means that they want. However, in order to be successful doing that, we've learned we have to impact people earlier in the disease trajectory. So if you go onto the Truth and Treatment website and you look at that website, those tools, that information, that could really help people at any point in a disease, anytime they're going to a doctor. Um, And the idea is that if you can empower people to be a good consumer and to ask the right questions and get care that they want earlier on, that that will help them be a better advocate for themselves later in life. You know, I don't want you to scold me too severely, Kim, but I'm 62 and I have not done a lot of the things that I probably should have done before this point. What would those be? So I want to distinguish between the things that you should do in order to ensure that when you can no longer care for yourself, you have those things in place from the things that you can do if you have a serious diagnosis in order to ensure that you get care that's consistent with your values and priorities. And those are two really different initiatives that we support. So our end-of-life consultation center, which is an online web tool that people can go to and it has a wealth of information about what it is that you should be doing at the end of life, it will encourage you and provide forms and information to fill out about an advanced directive which is when you can no longer speak for yourself, this is the document that indicates what kind of care you would like to receive in certain situations, and then a healthcare proxy. One of the most important things is that you've identified who your healthcare proxy is and that that person understands what kind of treatment that you want to be receiving. But those documents all go into place when you can no longer speak for yourself. The Truth and Treatment Initiative is an initiative that really gives you tools and information at the onset of a diagnosis to help ensure that you get care that's consistent with your values and priorities while you can still speak for yourself. And that was really designed because, not sure if you're familiar with it or not, but there is a wonderful book that was written by Atul Gawande called Being Mortal, and he outlines the challenges that we have with our current health system. And basically, doctors are really trained to treat and to cure. I mean, that's why they spend five years in medical school and all of the training that they have is because their goal is to treat and to cure somebody. But in somebody's disease trajectory, there becomes a point where they can no longer be healed. And the care should really shift from treating and curing to helping ensure that the person's quality of life is the best quality of life that they can have while they're still alive. But unfortunately, because doctors don't really have the training and our healthcare system is designed to treat and to cure, people tend to get treatment all the way through to the very end, and those treatments are often devastating. It might be a chemotherapy treatment that makes it so the person can no longer hold their grandchild because of the radioactivity of the treatment, or it may be that they spend the last six months to a year of their life in and out of the hospital. 
but people don't realize that there's a choice to be made. The choice is really being made for them by a system that's not working. So the tools that we've put together are designed to let people ask the right questions so that they can get care that's consistent with their values and priorities. So if it turns out the person wants very aggressive treatment all the way to the end of life, even if it's going to result in a very poor quality of life and may not extend their life, that's a terrifically valid decision that the person should be able to make. And we would advocate for that person's right to do that. But unfortunately, right now, people aren't making a choice. The choice is being made for them. And these tools help people get the information they need to be able to make the choice so that if they do choose a different course of action, it's consistent with their values and priorities. I understand that you're helping people clarify and write down what they want. There's still a gap between that and actually having it carried out. And that's my experience. I haven't dealt with end of life issues for myself personally, of course. But when my son was born, my wife and I wrote up our plan, gave it to the hospital where the birthing was going to take place. So they had all agreed and theoretically all their staff had seen this. And yet when my son was born, I stayed with him when he went into being under the little sun lamp there for an hour or something while they're doing observation weighing and these things. And along comes a nurse who evidently hasn't read the document about to do something that we said, no, we didn't want being done. How do you help people with that in end-of-life situations without having someone standing there right by them to make sure that their wishes are being honored? Yeah, Mark, you have hit the nail on the head of one of the biggest challenges when you're talking about the very end of life. And the exact same thing you're talking about happened with my grandmother who had a very clear do not resuscitate order in place and got rushed to the emergency room and ended up being resuscitated. And the very last words she said to the doctor before she died was, why did you violate my wishes? So there's no question this is a huge problem within our health system. You know, the best way to support a person is to have a strong healthcare proxy who's really clear about what those person's wishes are and then to make sure that the documentation is following the person everywhere that they go and that that advocate is with the person. And, of course, that's the ideal scenario, but unfortunately all too often that scenario is not realized There are a bunch of federal policy initiatives that are out there. I don't know how much traction they're going to get right now, but they had been kind of making their way through to strengthen the laws around the portability of records so that the actual orders would transfer with a patient. And then there were some other initiatives to try to give a little bit more legs to what the documentation meant. So those are potential policy solutions that could help. We would say the best, the part of the reason we're so excited about our Truth and Treatment Initiative is because it's not focused on that very, very, very end of life when the person can no longer speak for themselves. It's focused on the care that they're getting while they still can speak for themselves and that hopefully by flexing the muscle throughout that time, which is the far longer time and it's the time period that is really having the most devastating consequences on the kind of life a person lives at the very end, hopefully by flexing the muscles and learning to become a strong advocate for themselves, they're finding the right caregivers who will respect their values and priorities through that process. They're making sure that their health care proxy really does understand what kind of care they want to get. And this is what our research shows through that process that will ultimately really improve the very care they get at the end of life. This may sound a little bit like a distraction, but I think it's valid in the whole discussion. I read a lot of books. Uh, there's murder mysteries and all these kind of things. 
Very often in these books, there is a person who dies, and some relative of that person comes forward and obsesses about the last seconds of their life. Did they die in pain? Did they die in fear? Now, I do agree, I think, along with compassion and choices, that that should be a person's choice how they die, particularly when they're dealing with terminal illnesses, etc. But in these stories, the person is like being tormented by the fact that, oh, was he in pain the last few seconds? And the doctor will have to reassure him, no, he died instantaneously. He wouldn't have had time to feel any pain, even if that's not true. So there is some kind of an issue that we have with the people who survive and how they perceive the life and death of that person and how they want to see that controlled, that in fact there's a distributed pain, if you will, that people experience. Is this at all relevant to the discussion that you have as Compassion and Choices? And again, folks' website is CompassionandChoices.org. We're speaking to their chief program officer, Kimberly Callanan. Uh, so, Kim, is that at all relevant to the kind of dynamics that go on in terms of sorting out how we want to treat a person who's dying? Mark, you hit a very, very real dynamic that is studied um, quite a bit. In the research that we recently did, we invest a lot of research in trying to understand how to improve end-of-life care from the consumer perspective. And what you're talking about is what was referred to in the research as swoopers often not the person that's closest to that person. It's often somebody who lives out of state and has a little bit of guilt and doesn't know what's been going on and they're out of the loop about what kind of care that person is looking for. And then they come in and they have a tremendous amount of guilt and they start to insist on decisions being made that's different from what that individual person, the dying person, wanted. And it's a real challenge for the hospital because even if the doctors are familiar with what the patient wanted, the voice that's going to be left afterwards is that family member that's standing right there. So it's a very, very real concern. We would, as you indicated, argue very strongly that it is the dying person whose voice should be respected and heard. They are the ones that should be able to control their autonomy at the end of life. If they want to leave leeway for somebody else to make a decision, that should be what they say in the advanced directives and in their form. And it should then be the healthcare proxy that has the say. And those who have strong feelings are thoughtful about who that healthcare proxy is. As an example, when my father went in for his surgery, he was having quadruple bypass surgery, he and my mom spoke and decided that I would be his healthcare proxy, not my mother. The rationale for this was that my father did not believe that my mother would be able to make the very difficult decisions about when to end his life that he would want to be made. So he was really clear in certain circumstances he would not want every available means, that he would want to choose a peaceful death. You know, there were certain kinds of quality of life that were important to him. And he didn't think my mom would be able to carry out his wishes. And so he asked me whether I would. And so I ended up being his healthcare proxy. Unfortunately, we never had to test whether or not I had the strength to be able to do that. But I believe I would because for me, the most important thing is knowing that I'm respecting my father's values and priorities. And that's what somebody should look for when they're identifying their healthcare proxy. Yeah, I've got a couple stories personally to relate about that that maybe illustrate some of the issues that Compassion and Choices deals with. First, I wanted to ask, 
It strikes me that there's this thing called hospice, which I really don't recall existing 20, maybe 30 years ago. I imagine it did exist, or I imagine that historically we essentially did hospice because people weren't sent off to hospitals. So I want to go into that historical stuff in a little bit, but it seems to me that if you're doing hospice, particularly hospice at home, as opposed to some room in the hospital, that effectively helps you be removed from the hospital personnel who are going to try and rush you into the emergency room to resuscitate you when that's not what you want. I think somehow that decision to have hospice at home means that the power is more clearly in your hands. Do I correctly perceive that? And is this really a relatively new phenomenon like it appears to me? You're right that hospice kind of emerged as a movement. I feel like it was in the 70s and 80s. And it really has transformed the way end-of-life care is delivered within this country. It is about people accepting and acknowledging that they have a terminal illness and that they have a prognosis of six months or less to live and that they are not going to be cured. And it's looking at what is the quality of life the person wants to receive while they're in hospice care. There are some amazing, amazing hospice care programs and some people have the benefit of in-home care and some people are doing it at an institution. I mean, there's lots of different ways that hospice is delivered. And there are some that are terrific and some that that, you know, could be improved. So I think people's experiences vary, but the concept of hospice, generally speaking, is really tremendous and it allows people to um, really get care that's consistent with their values and priorities and take care of some of the pain and some of the worry that people often have at the end of life. And it also provides a tremendous amount of support to the family. Well, I'd like to talk, Kim, about some of the broader history of this because I think that it'll bring out some of the thornier issues, the problems, and why it wasn't till 20 years ago, starting with Oregon, that there was actually some kind of right to die with dignity type legislation. Before that, this was a very gray area and there was considerable contention about it. But if we go back a hundred years or maybe even 200 years, I think that the attitudes towards dying were very different. I think a much larger percentage of people died at home still back in those days, less than the hospital. Could you talk about that trajectory and how we came to be in the situation that needed some correction starting, I think, with the act in Oregon back in 1997? Part of, I think, the growth and the need for improvements at the end of life really came from there being tremendous improvements in the medical system where we were extending life. So it used to be that people would die relatively quickly at a young age, either from disease or from other things that ended people's life. And then you had penicillin and you had all kinds of life-saving illnesses and people's lives started going longer and longer and longer. And then you had some pretty devastating illnesses like um, HIV AIDS where the deaths were really, really, really painful. And the kind of culmination of people living longer and medicine being able to do a better job and then there being some illnesses that then were just hard deaths. Like if you think about cancer, the treatment for cancer itself is a really, really painful, devastating treatment depending on the kind of treatment you get and the cancer that you have. So the treatment itself is just as bad as the actual disease can be in some instances. The first modern hospice care was created by Cicely Saunders in 1967. It came out of a long tradition of wanting to support people at the end of life and a need to respond to the improvements that we were seeing in medical care and what that meant for the end of life. For some people, there was a need to also have a death that they could control and 
that was when the Oregon legislation was first introduced, was out of a movement of people, and the HIV-AIDS was a big part of that movement, who wanted to be able to control what their death looked like. The deaths were really, really horrific, and people were looking for control and autonomy at the end of life, and to know that if death became so painful that they would be able to end their suffering. And that's where the movement really grew from, around medical aid and dying. And fortunately, we have now seen that movement really take off. So Oregon was the first state to pass by ballot initiative, but now there has been laws that are authorizing it in seven jurisdictions. And this is quite simply the option to have a peaceful death, where if a person has a prognosis of six months or less to live, they can go to their doctor, and if they meet certain eligibility criteria, they can take pain medication that would allow them to end their life peacefully and with dignity. Folks, this is Spirit in Action, which is Northern Spirit Radio production. On the web, that means you find us at northernspiritradio.org. With almost 12 years of our programs for free listening and download, you'll find links to our guests. So when you want to track down Compassion and Choices, and our guest is Kimberly Callanen. She is the Chief Program Officer of Compassion and Choices. Their website is compassionandchoices.org. Also on the site, there's a place to post comments, and we really love best of all two-way communication, so post a comment when you visit. There's also a place to donate. That's how this full-time work is funded. It's funded 100% by your donations, not by government and not by corporations. It's because you want to make sure these programs continue. But even more important than that, I would say support your local community radio stations, the places that carry this kind of program, because the work they do is so important in terms of providing an authentic local voice. We don't get enough of that with mass-distributed media. So again, we're speaking with Kimberly Callanan. She is Chief Program Officer, Compassion and Choices. We're talking about end-of-life decisions, and I think that from Compassion Choices' point of view, and you've said this a number of times, Kim, it's really about honoring the choices of the individual as opposed to the system. I think historically one of the things that I'm first aware of is we became aware that in the 1950s when birthing was so hospital-centric, it became a doctor's decision how you're going to do birthing. In the 1960s, there was a pretty strong reaction against that. 70s, 1986 is when my son was born, and it was well established by then. It was kind of ridiculous, the thought that you would say, no, family cannot be in the room, only the doctor gets to decide who's in the room at the birthing. I think that that has to have started to raise some people's consciousness so that when AIDS epidemic and other horrific ways of dying, cancer certainly part of that, just having a doctor decide who was in the room seemed insufficient. Does that seem like a dawning of consciousness in the culture maybe 50 years ago with the birthing leading to also the concerns on the other end of life? Absolutely, Mark. The childbirth movement was actually the movement that we studied when we developed our Truth and Treatment Initiative, which we just recently launched. The hope with that initiative and what all of our research demonstrates is that if we can get people to ask the kinds of questions about the care that they want to receive and mirror what happened in the childbirth movement, that we can really transform the end-of-life experience. 
There is a thorny part of the issue that we have to get in touch with, and this has to do with religion and spirituality. And again, this program is spirit in action. I do actually have my religion. I'm Quaker. But part of my religion includes the fact that people have to sort things out themselves. It's not a hierarchical religion. That might feel a little bit different than the Catholicism I grew up with or many other religions. I'm afraid that often there's a pitched battle, probably a mistaken pitched battle because people are focusing on the wrong things, between some religious forces and the people who are working for compassion and choices. Am I mistaken or doesn't that often become the battleground where the advocacy is disputed? It depends on which piece of the advocacy work that we're doing. So we really work to improve care and expand choice at the end of life. And that's the full spectrum of care. So we support hospice and palliative care and palliative sedation and VSED and, you know, the host of issues. Um, If you were to look at our legislative policy agenda and compare it to many, you know, Catholic organizations' national policy agenda, there would be 99% agreement across the two agendas. So there is a lot, a lot of commonality between the two. When you look at one issue that we advocate very passionately about, medical aid and dying, um, we often do see the controversy that you were talking about from some of the religious communities, not all religious communities, but in particular the Catholic community. And what we're advocating for is merely the option so that the individual person can choose whether or not they want to take advantage of the prescription medication if they are eligible. We in no way would ever advocate for somebody to have to do it or for a doctor to be able to make the decision or a family or or caregiver to be able to make the decision. For us, it's about the individual person being given the option. When you look at polling data from people of all different religions, whether it's Catholic or Protestant or, you know, any other religion um, that we've seen data for, the majority of people support the passage of medical aid and dying legislation. It's a very, very popular option. It's not popular among the Catholic hierarchy. It is among the individual parishioners. So there is that battle, um, the controversy that you spoke to, but it's really among the leadership. It's not among parishioners. And I made the mistake, Kim. I referred to physician-assisted suicide, which I think was 20 or 30 years ago, or maybe the term that was current. You just used the word that is common today, medical aid in dying. So we've gone from physician-assisted suicide as a concept to medical aid in dying, and there's a difference between how people think about those two. Could you explain why the change in terminology was necessary and what we're actually dealing with? Absolutely. First of all, it's really important with this legislation that the way it's designed is that the individual person is the one that is performing the act. So a physician is not injecting medication in the person. They may not put pills down the person. The only way that legally under the law the act works is the person has to be able to take the medication themselves. So the act is the individual person. So the use of the word physician suggests that the physician is the one performing the act, so it's not really accurate. In terms of the word suicide, suicide suggests that the person is making a decision to take their life. And the reality is with the use of this medication, a person has to be terminally ill and have a prognosis of six months or less to live. It is the actual disease that is taking their life, and they are merely choosing to accelerate their death in order to avoid pain and suffering. So it's very offensive to somebody who is dying to suggest that they are committing suicide when, in fact, a disease is taking their life. 
There is a phrase that sometimes gets bandied about, and I think it's wrong-headed, actually, that if you decide to allow someone to not prolong their life, that you're playing God. When, in fact, a doctor, to some degree, by doing a heart transplant or whatever, is actually playing God. Now, I'm not saying that one should or shouldn't do it based on that, but that phrase, playing God, gets used conveniently by people who want to argue for their agenda. My own personal situation, by the way, included the fact that my father had terminal emphysema. He was at home for three years on oxygen. He, at one point, broke his hip and was in intensive care for a couple weeks. And at the end of that period, he made the decision that he would come home from the hospital. He was still in pain, but he was getting some medication for that. He came home and went off oxygen and just prepared himself so that he could die without prolonging his agony. That was a decision very much in line with compassion and choices that the organization would want to support. He gets to make his decision as opposed to a doctor saying, no, you have to stay in the hospital. We have to work on your hip. We have to keep giving you oxygen and keep you alive. Am I perceiving correctly the objective of the organization? Yeah, the objective of the organization is that the individual person should get to make the decision themselves. So if your father had made the decision that he wanted to stay in the hospital and get all the care in the world, that would have been a completely valid decision as long as he was fully informed about what that meant. The fact that your father you know, chose to go home and live his remaining days at his house and get treatment at home is an equally valid decision. The guiding factor for us is that the individual person should be the decision maker and that to be a decision maker, you have to be fully informed about all available care options. So if you are not provided with information that allows you to assess whether or not those options are consistent with your values and priorities, the health system is failing. There's another case in my family, and this dealt with my wife's mother, who had dementia, fairly advanced, and she didn't have any directives in place what she wanted to have happen which, of course, I think that Compassion and Choices is attempting to encourage people to be ready for it before they get to a mental state. The laws, as I understand, are written that it's only mentally competent people who get to make these decisions. And so you want to make it early enough so that you can be mentally competent to make such a decision. What happened in her case was she was in a nursing home. Her kidneys had shut down, and there was the possibility she could go through medical resuscitation. It would be very painful. She's not mentally present. From her point of view, she doesn't really know what's going on. So the three children were talking about this, and the husband was still there. That is to say, my mother's father was still there conversation with him was very difficult. He was relatively mentally competent, but his hearing was bad and his speech was undependable. So the three siblings are talking about what to do. And at a certain point, they said, well, we can talk to their father's brother, who was a doctor himself. And they said, well, why don't you go over and be with the father? And so you could communicate and help do this. And he said, no, I won't be part of it. It's ridiculous that you're going to try and keep her alive at this point. She doesn't know what's going on. You'll just be torturing her. And I simply won't be part of prolonging that suffering. Now, that was his personal choice, in essence. But they were vastly relieved because they were worried that they would not be doing everything that they should be doing. Again, this should comes from, I think, something that our society carries in the background. 
And as you said, when you were referring to a distant relative who comes to town, feels guilty, there's a lot of people, even those close to the person who's dying, who feel like they should keep the person alive. I noticed in your seven principles that Compassion and Choices has, one of them is balance, balance between quantity and quality of life. And I think people lose sight of that because the thing that has been drubbed into our heads by our society is you have to make one day, one hour, one minute longer. And that's the only criteria, that quality of life seems to have been lost in the system. So how do you help people focus on their choice between quantity and quality of life? How do you bring that out to people when the overwhelming societal imperative is quantity? Yeah, so this is really about creating a cultural shift and getting people to have the conversations and to think about what it is that they're looking for at the end of life. We have a guide called the Good to Go Toolkit, which really helps people get more familiar with what their values and priorities are. The reality is when you look at research and you talk to people, most people choose quality of life over quantity of life. And when you look at the research studies that are out there, many of the very painful treatments that are taking place at the end of life that are debilitating are not actually even extending the quality of life. They are just making it so that the very end of someone's life is painful and debilitating. It's even worse than what you're describing because it's not like someone's life is being extended through it. Someone's life is often not being extended ended, but the quality of their life has seriously diminished. So the best thing that people can do is to become really clear about what their values and priorities are and to identify a very strong healthcare proxy who will stand up for them. They can no longer speak for themselves. And the Good to Go Toolkit is an excellent place to start to get a sense of what your values and priorities might be. You've already referred a little bit, Kim, to public use on this kind of thing, but that phrase, the playing God thing, you, you referred to the hierarchy, at least, of the Catholic Church and maybe other organizations as well, I'm not sure, that some folks believe that in any way facilitating end-of-life is somehow playing God. How common in our society or what organizations, groups, what percentage of the population actually oppose people having the option to no longer extend their life when they're in terminal pain? So if you look at data around whether or not people support the passage of medical aid in dying, two-thirds of the population supported across every single demographic group. So that leaves about a third of the people who don't support it. So it's got two-to-one support. I think the concept of playing God, I have a very tough time with it because our medical system is on a regular basis extending people's life. People have pacemakers in, people use penicillin, all kinds of medical interventions are done that are extending people's life. What we're really doing is after someone's life has been extended and extended and extended and now it's really clear that we've gotten to a place where those extensions are no longer leading to the kind of quality life that the individual person is choosing, that now we use medicine to help them make a decision to end their life peacefully and with dignity if that's what they choose. I, like you, have a difficult time understanding the plain God argument that's used against the passage of this legislation. Folks, we are speaking with Kimberly Callanan. She is Chief Program Officer of Compassion and Choices. Their website, CompassionandChoices.org. There's a link on NorthernSpiritRadio.org where you can get to them and also to their uh, new program called TruthAndTreatment.org. Both those links are on NorthernSpiritRadio.org. 
Kim, you said across all demographics, and at one point earlier in the interview, you mentioned that the support for aid in dying is the same by religious group, but yet this playing God has a certain religious cachet. By the way, I'd mentioned that I'm interviewing you after your suggestion came to me from one of the Norton Spirit Radio listeners and supporters. Rich Van Dellen is himself a medical doctor, and he thought this was an absolutely important issue that needed to be brought to the front. He's a Quaker, just as I am, so I think there's probably a shared way of thinking about these things that we have that might be different than the Catholic hierarchy, I'm not sure. Are there specific religious enclaves or doctrines or something that are used to prohibit people from having the choice about aid in dying? You know, you would have to talk to somebody who is an expert from one of those religions to really dig into what does the religion doctrine say. What I would say, we have got support among various different religions, and as with every issue, you can interpret passages from the Bible or whatever governing law is for that religion in lots of different ways. So we have various different religious leaders who have spoken out. Archbishop Desmond Tutu has spoken out in support of a passage of medical aid and dying, Reverend. Ignacio Castuera, um, a host of others who are able to point to different religious passages that, you know, support people at the end of life and suggest that this would be okay. So I think you can interpret religion in so many different ways that there are certainly religious leaders who are supportive. And I don't want people to lose track of the fact that this is only one of three main subpoints under the mission of Compassion and Choices. Only one of the issues that's related has to do at all with when a person chooses to die. But there is constantly the issue about palliative care, and there's issue about providing for choice for the individual in where and when, how these things proceed. I'm afraid that too often people do get focused on this one aspect of the whole process. One word that, you know, I don't know when palliative as a word achieved currency, but I have a feeling that that is also something that's 40, 50, 60 years old. Certainly it existed before, you know, make him comfortable. I mean, that's another way for palliative, I suppose, to be addressed. But I was kind of stunned when I saw that there was a journal of palliative medicine. I had no idea that they could even have their own journal. Yeah, so the palliative care community actually emerged after hospice. It's newer. And, you know, hospice for a while from some people got a bad rap because it was associated with death. And palliative care community emerged and doesn't want to be associated with death. They want to be associated with supporting people around not having pain. So they're actually, for some within the palliative care community, they really try to keep themselves distinct from hospice. That said, palliative care is a key and important part of hospice. Our general framework and belief is that palliative care is important, hospice is important. You know, palliative care starts earlier. Someone may not be terminally ill yet. They could have a disease um, that they use palliative care to help slow down the pain while they are trying to slow down the progression of the disease, but there's not a cure for that disease whereas somebody won't move into hospice until a doctor is certified that they have less than six months to live. But then while they are in hospice, they also get palliative care. 
You know, this Spirit in Action program, Kim, is carried across the United States in a number of states, including in Oregon, where Barbara Coombsley started advocating for this right and dying and the larger Compassion and Choices work. It started in Oregon, and this program's carried there and in Washington, California, and Massachusetts, and across the United States. And I think it would probably be good if we did an overview of which states currently have legislation in place that helps provide for the individual choices that you're advocating for, and which states are on their way or at least considering this at this point. So Oregon is uh, the gold-plated template that we want to use that we started from. What other states have implemented something comparable or on the way to what Oregon already has? Sure, and states can authorize medical aid in dying in any number of ways, through a ballot initiative, through legislation, or through a Supreme Court, a state Supreme Court decision. And right now, there are seven jurisdictions that have authorized medical aid in dying. Oregon, as you noted, was the first in 1994, and that was by ballot initiative. Washington State followed in 2008, and that was also by ballot initiative. In 2009, Montana had a state Supreme Court decision, And then Vermont was in 2013, California was in 2015, Colorado was in 2016, and Washington, D.C. was in 2017. So that one just got authorized. And are those states at all comparable to what happens in Oregon, or maybe just a a portion of the concerns are addressed? The ones that went through legislation and through ballot initiative are pretty similar to what's in Oregon. In each state, there are slight variations, but all of them call for the medical aid in dying to be a safe and trusted medical practice. A person must be terminally ill and mentally capable. They must be an adult. Prognosis of six months or less to live. They have to request the medication from their doctor. There has to be a second doctor that certifies that they are mentally capable of making an informed health care decision, and they have to be able to self-ingest the medication. So that's consistent across all of the states where there's a ballot initiative or there's legislation. And then there's a host of other safeguards or regulatory requirements that are in place, and they're pretty consistent across the states, but there are some small variations by different states that are, you know, unique to those states, but pretty similar. My assumption is that before such legislation was in place, sometimes a doctor might help with end-of-life choices that the individual wants to make, kind of with a wink and a nod, that the person who's dying might have a medication at hand and simply decide to take an overdose, so to speak, and, and die. What happened before the legislation was in place? When it went to Supreme Courts, what were they actually deciding? What kind of cases were they deciding on? You're absolutely right that every doctor handles what happens at the end of life differently and that certainly before the legislation was in place in those states and afterwards there were some people who could go to a doctor and that doctor may make the decision for themselves and give them more medication that results in them ending their life. What is the beauty of the legislation is it makes it really clear that the decision should be in the hands of the individual person and not the doctor's decision. And so we're actually taking what was an underground practice, putting regulatory framework in place to make sure that the decision is really the patient. So I would say it's much safer in terms of protecting the patient than what was previously in place before it was authorized within those states. 
the decision in terms of the courts, like when it went through to Montana, what it basically said in the decision was that doctors could not be prosecuted for prescribing medication to somebody who were to come forward and request this type of medication themselves. So what's missing in many of the states is something that gives the doctor certainty that if they were to do this, that they won't be prosecuted. The other thing that's really important about all of this is that we do have a Supreme Court decision, a U.S. Supreme Court decision, which has authorized the practice of palliative sedation. So what palliative sedation is, is that the person remains unconscious until they die. So they're given enough pain medication to sedate them. And then after they're sedated, you can choose to withhold treatment from them. So if they have a pacemaker, you might turn it off. They can choose to voluntarily stop eating and drinking. And then they're supposed to stay sedated until they die. And the pain medication will hopefully ensure that they have some type of a peaceful death. So the practice of palliative sedation has actually been recognized by the courts as a right that people have. The distinction the courts make is whether or not the doctor's intention was for the person to die or was the doctor's intention for the person to control the person's pain and suffering. So doctors do have protection if they choose to engage in palliative sedation. But under our current court, they have not yet decided, except in Montana and on a U.S. Supreme Court basis, they haven't really decided whether or not people have the right to make their own decision about peacefully ending their life through medical aid and dying. So on the federal level, at least a piece of it has been addressed. I also saw via your website that there are a number of states who are considering legislation or have proposed legislation. Wisconsin is among those, I was happy to note. Are there any bright prospects on the horizon, states that seem pretty likely to move in the direction of guaranteeing the personal choice in terms of quality and quantity of life that the individual will continue? So I always hate to um, try to put a crystal ball in place because you never quite know what will happen. There is legislation, this legislative cycle, there was legislation in about 24 states. So we are definitely seeing a movement of states that are considering this issue and want to take it on. And I think the states are in various different places in the legislative session, as you probably know from your work. Every year in states and federally, thousands of pieces of legislation are introduced and 1% of the legislation will pass. In Oregon, it took years to go from the first time legislation was introduced to it being passed. In California, it was 30 years of introductions before the legislation actually got passed. But we are seeing some progress being made in many states. I would say Hawaii looks pretty promising. New Jersey, there's a very strong effort in New York. So we're definitely seeing progress being made across the country. What do you see as the options that are in place and maybe changes that need to be addressed in the states where medical aid and dying haven't been dealt with legislatively? Across the country in all states, as people move to the end of their life, they should have access to pain and symptom management. They're in the last six months of their life hospice. And then they can make choices about how they want to end their life or accelerate their death by voluntarily stopping eating and drinking, declining or stopping life-sustaining treatment, or through palliative sedation, which we talked about earlier, which is when a doctor gives a person enough medication until they're unconscious, and then you can choose to withhold fluid or stop their treatment options. 
So those are the options that are currently available to people, and for many, many people, those options work fine. Some of the best doctors that are out there that have palliative care specialists are able to control people's pain and suffering. Unfortunately, for many people, that is not enough, which is why we advocate for the option of medical aid in dying. But even for those people where those options would be enough, one of the biggest problems that we have right now is that people aren't aware that those options exist. So if you go back to the example with my grandmother earlier, she was in a nursing home for several years at the end of her life. She would absolutely not have wanted her life to be extended, but in the nursing home rules, they fed her. Despite that my mom and my grandfather kept asking them to stop, they continued to feed her long past where she wanted to accept food, so it's almost as if she was being force-fed. Really, her right is to voluntarily stop eating and drinking, but it's not really recognized in that way often, and sort of practice within our system is to force-feed people that are in any kind of an institution. Likewise, the idea of declining or stopping life-sustaining treatment, that's often not offered to people as an option. So my grandfather had a pacemaker, Fortunately, by the time my grandfather got to the very end of his life, he was still able to speak for himself. My mom at that point had been a hospice social worker for many, many, many years, and so he was surrounded with the best care. So the experience that my grandmother had, which was really pretty awful at the end of life, my mom was able to ensure that my grandfather had a much better experience. And so when he had really got to the end of his life and had decided that the quality of his life was no longer what he wanted it to be, he was able to articulate that to the social worker that was there who then said to my mom, your dad's really ready now. And all of us were able to come and stand by his side. He got to say goodbye to me and to my daughter and my son, and we were by his side. And the very last thing that he said was he gave my daughter the candy that was at his bedside, and I can still remember the smile on his face when he told her that he had saved that candy for her, and he made the decision, really, that my mom supported that he would turn his pacemaker off, and, you know, he died shortly after that, and it was really a beautiful experience that brought the family together. We all knew that his wishes were being honored. And my mom was able to make that experience happen because she was truly educated about what her options were. But unfortunately for most people, you know, they're not a hospice social worker and they don't have a hospice social worker working on their caregiver who happens to be their best friend who's able to pick up on signs and share the difficult news. They're uninformed and don't know what this experience is going to be like. And so they don't get to experience the kind of beautiful death that my grandfather had. And I want to talk a little bit about you, Kim, and also founder, Barbara Coombs-Lee. She actually used to work, or she originally worked ER, ICU nurse, and physician assistant. She did that for 25 years, and then became a private attorney and counsel. That seemed a strange progression, but on the other hand, I guess if you see enough people's rights deprived, their choices violated in the end-of-life scenario, that maybe that would be enough to motivate motivate you to go through law school and become an effective advocate as an attorney as well. Your trajectory was somewhat different. 
your undergraduate degree was in government, and then you go to a certificate in public health from University of South Florida, and then a master's degree in public policy at Georgetown. So I think you kind of came at it from the opposite end, but obviously both of you have felt a deep calling. Are you doing this work as a values-led decision? It's not because you're trying to get rich, is it? Oh, no, no. (laughs) I'm kind of assuming it's not great paid. My trajectory was slightly different than the way you described it. I actually went and got my undergraduate degree in government and politics, and then I came to Washington, D.C. and got a master's degree in public policy. And while I was in Washington, D.C., I started working on political campaigns and was really one of the young people who came to D.C. wanting to change the world. And I worked on political campaigns across the country. I did a lot of national politics. But ultimately, my heart was really in policy. I wanted to be about policy change around issues that I really cared about. And so I ended up at a social marketing firm running a large child health insurance program. Did work for the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation's initiative around child health care coverage and ran a bunch of different large social marketing initiatives and then went from there to running a public health firm or uh, the communications and programmatic elements of a public health firm that did a lot of work with federal government agencies, NIH and SAMHSA and HHS, and was doing quite well in my career and had a good couple hundred people underneath me. But really, I was missing the advocacy side of my work. I was an advocate from the heart, and that was where my passion was, and that was what I wanted to be doing. So I actually did a kind of return to my roots and really wanted to find an issue that I was passionate about. My mom was a hospice social worker growing up, so we used to have lots of conversations around death in our household and some of the shortcomings of our system. And I watched my grandmother have a really awful death and my grandfather have a really terrific death. And the impact that that had on me was pretty tremendous. And so when this opportunity came before me, I'm definitely not getting rich. I am earning a significant amount less than I used to earn when I was working in the corporate world. But the amount of passion and energy that I feel because I know that in the end, people are going to get better health care at the end of life makes that worthwhile. I can only just say how deeply I appreciate people who follow their leading. That's a Quaker word that has a special meaning for us. Follow leading, how they're going to make the world a better place. And that really strikes me as so crucial that people make those kind of choices. It's not just about quantity. It is about quality, I guess. And, And you're making that decision personally. So I appreciate so deeply that you've made that choice, Kim. Again, folks, we've been speaking with Kim Callanan, Chief Program Officer serve for Compassion and Choices, their website, CompassionAndChoices.org, the links on NordenSpiritRadio.org. They're making a great difference to empower people in end-of-life choices, to have integrity and compassion displayed in carrying out their wishes. So I thank you so much for being part of that work, Kim, and especially for joining me today for Spirit in Action. Great. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. I've really appreciated the opportunity. Remember to go to CompassionAndChoices.org to track down more information. And on there, you'll also find a link to TruthAndTreatment.org. A special thanks to Catherine Thomas for production assistance on today's program and also to Rich Van Dellen for recommending that I speak with Compassion and Choices. We'll see you next week for Spirit in Action. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. 
This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.